Hey, good morning. Hey, for the benefit of those of you who are here or watching online that don't know me, um, my name is Don Miller. I'm one of the elders here at Harvest uh, Decatur. And I was telling somebody um, earlier this, this last week that, you know, it's been five years since, I, since I've been in the pulpit here preaching. And, uh, uh, you know, I realized after, after um, preparing that this morning I'm just a little bit hoarse. Um, and in fact, I mentioned it, I mentioned it to George earlier today. He said, you know, I'm feeling a little bit hoarse. And he says, so I should call you pony today. <laughs> so I don't know. Anyway, you know, for the last uh, six weeks or so, we've been, uh, the elders have been leading a sermon series that um, each week the elders have taken a topic out of the book of James. And, you know, we've done that teaching on that particular section of scripture you know, this week is the sixth installment of that, uh, of that um, journey um, that we've entitled Journey Through the Letter of James. I do want to loop back, though, to the beginning of the series as it began with Pastor Tony um, uh, showing us that, you know, in James, he wrote the letter to motivate us to tell us that sincere believers um, are to live out their faith uh, with visible action and in the subsequent weeks, uh, we see we saw examples of how putting that faith into practice works. We've seen examples like wisdom and peace and dedication. And what George Bennett shared with us last week were the traits of what friends of God uh, possess. And you know, I loved it last week when George um, delved into the. He said he couldn't preach uh, his sermon without without an obligatory dip into the sciences. And he promptly went into the first law of thermodynamics and used open and closed loop systems as a illustration of worldliness and God -cent versus God-centeredness. And, you know, being an industrial and systems engineer and an environmental engineer, I recognize that George has set the bar fairly high for us. Um, so I'm obligated to venture into the environmental sciences as well. So to get us started this morning... Um, We'll go ahead and you'll see on the screen that uh, we're going to start with the ugly duckling. This is my venture into the sciences. Um, you know, the ugly duckling is a world famous Walt Disney tale written by Hans Christian Andersen, 1931. And the story begins with a mother duck that hatches some eggs. And, uh, you know, one of the hatchlings, the little hatchlings is different than the other fowl on the farm. Instead of having yellow feathers, the ugly little creature was kind of scraggly and gray and black. And suffered a lot of harassment from the other uh, from the other ducklings and you know when the oddball hatchling would walk by they'd scream out ugly 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 um, as and just harass the the little guy you know to escape the abuse the hatchling wanders away from the barnyard and and lives with some wild ducks and geese until one day farmers find the wild ducks and or um, hunters find the wild ducks and geese and and uh, slaughter them and the ugly duckling is forced to go find another home. So he does. He finds another home with a, an old woman who has cats and, and chickens, and the, the cat and the chickens, you know, harass the ugly duckling there, and, you know, they just taunt him mercilessly. So off he goes again. He gets, uh, and he finds a lake, uh, finds a lake, and he sees some swans flying, flying over, but he's stuck on the lake because he's still too young. He can't fly, and, and it's not mature enough. But when winter arrives, you know, another farmer finds the, the ugly duckling and takes him home, but the, the farmer's kids are too loud and scares the duckling away, the ugly duckling away again. And um, 
so he leaves the he leaves the um, protection of the farm and goes to um, spend the winter outdoors which you know he spends it mostly hiding in a cave and that's on a frozen lake that and but then when spring arrives a flock of swans descends down on the lake and the ugly duckling now having pretty much grown up is fully matured this is the they no longer wants to live a life of hardship and misery and and alone and endure a life of solitude so he decides that hey it's better for me to go and and be killed by a bunch of birds that are so beautiful than to live this life that I've been living and so but then he finds that once he gets into the water he sees his reflection and we know what happens he sees himself as a swan right and uh, you know what I want to what I want to point out is that the ducklings the pretty yellow ducklings in the very beginning of the story they would scream out ugly 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 um, because they missed the entire picture you know the what the picture that they missed was you know in the screaming of ugly and their disgust they missed the fact that in their midst was a pure white swan something that was good they were partly correct there is a fowl in our midst but it was just a different kind of fowl right everybody tracking with me so far okay so well today's scripture continues us on in a journey to where we're finding ourselves dealing with some incomplete knowledge of the believers now these are believers that have already taken the profession or already made the profession of faith you know faith you know they've they've already come to the point where they they you know kind of professed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead they've already done that but there's something missing in their in their understanding so um, the scripture that we're dealing with is a, that incomplete knowledge among the believers. You know, there's some misconceptions and misunderstandings, some disagreements, even disagreements among great theologians over this particular set of scripture. You know, there's been some very passionate disagreements, and I dare say that um, one could have heard Martin Luther screaming, ugly, 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 uh, over some of the teaching, his perceived teachings that he sees in um, uh, the book of James you know Martin Luther that great reformer and staunch defender of the truth sola fide by faith alone uh, you know he had strong exceptions with uh, the teaching here particularly early in his ministry and we'll see why as we step through the scripture here in just a few minutes but Luther even backed off his passionate disagreement with James as he matured in his ministry you know, and as we step through this teaching this morning, um, I pray that the conclusions that each one of us draws as we come through this just gives us a more complete understanding of what God expects of each of us, as well as um, helping to mature us as we walk through our personal walks and um, perform our personal ministries that God's laid out for us. So if you would, please stand with me as I pray and remain standing after, afterwards, and I will read today's scripture. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. It is good to be in your house this morning. It's good to be in a place where we're able to lift you up in worship, Lord, and sing praises to you. We love lifting you up. Uh, we love placing you above every other name and sing praises to 
our Lord, the Most High. Father, may we receive instruction from you now as we, as we go. Pray that you challenge our understanding of, of Scripture. We ask, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us in new and different ways as we hear your word. Lord, we just ask that uh, you give us great sensitivity to what the Spirit is guiding us towards. And Father, as I pray that as I deliver this message this morning, that I would be faithful and true to your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Okay, our scripture this morning is found in James uh, 2, chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Church of God, this is the word of God. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things that they need for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when, we, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Church, that's today's scripture. You may be seated. Okay, so by my count, uh, the most frequently used words in this uh, passage are faith, which is used 11 times, and works that are used 12. So in typical engineer fashion, I'm going to be creative and title this Faith and Works. If you... Yeah, and you'll see that faith and works is kind of how the sub, subtitle is for this. But, um, you know, it gives us a pretty good indication of what the topic that James is really concerned about in this scripture. Um, and that's, that's why uh, um, titled it that way. Well, let's pull this scripture apart and do some thinking about it. Um, you know, verse 14 of our text says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? I want you to write this down as point one. And point one is that faith that does not work is not saving faith. You know, James here is addressing an issue in the church that is somewhat hypothetical in, in its nature. You know, he's not calling out anyone specifically or any one group. You know, the issue is, though, that there are believers in their midst that are convinced that the doctrine of only faith is enough for the believer. But James is saying, hey, you're missing something here. There is more. 
you know, and he's using a couple of rhetorical questions in, in the scripture uh, to make his, to help make his point, rhetorical questions, and he's using them back to back with one another. So uh, the structure of verse 14 is, is interesting in that James says, hey, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, the word someone here um, is somewhat ambiguous, not calling anyone out, it's gender neutral in nature, but uh, it's clearly that the person is making a claim that they have faith. And the ambiguity would indicate to, to us that you know, it's not limited to any one person, it's a, more of a general statement. Um, but there's a, a potential wider issue. So as he moves from someone, he's, the word someone, he says, someone says. Now, there are other translations of the Bible that will, instead of using says, he'll use the word claim. But it, whether you use says, someone says, or someone claims, it really doesn't matter. The, the word kind of sets the tone uh, for the phrase. If someone says it's a questioning, kind of sarcastic tone in, in nature, and it suggests that if you land in the camp where you do not feel that you have to demonstrate works, you better be thinking critically about the reality of your faith. You know, James is addressing professing believers here that are simply not bearing any fruit in their life. And, um, and the, the concern is that believers who have like, these are believers who've likely told themselves over and over again, only faith, only faith, only faith is required of me, and all the while convincing themselves that they've done enough to inherit eternal life. We see something similar to this when we, when we look in Mark 10 about the rich young man. Mark was, or um, the rich young man was speaking to Jesus about keeping the commandments and asking him about inheriting eternal life. And he says, teacher, hey, I've kept all of these things since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. He says, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. You know, the balance of that exchange in, in Scripture is that the, it ends with the young man uh, hanging his head and leaving. You know, he didn't get the answer from Jesus there that he expected. You know, he was convinced. He had convinced himself that he would be received with open arms, because of the things that he'd already done, thinking that, hey, what I've done is enough, um, to, frankly, enough to inherit the kingdom of, of heaven. But to be clear, no one is ever saved by convincing themselves that they're saved. Does that make sense? No one is ever saved by convincing themselves that are saved. Uh, and that's, the, that's what James is concerned about here. So the second, so you see the second question in the phrase uses that faith. So the second question that James used, can that faith save? Well, James is concerned about the underlying issue that only the, faith, the only faith perspective will ultimately deceive people into thinking that what they're doing is good enough. You know, the King James version of the, uh, King James version of the Bible translates that phrase, can faith save him? which is probably added to some of the confusion over the course of time, because you know, in the ESV, what we see is, you know, can that faith save? Well, what the King James Version misses is that the literary, in the literary structure, the Greek article used with faith in this instance has a significance of referring back to the last time I used the word faith. 
so the that faith is a much better translation um, of it. And I like what Douglas Moose says in his commentary about James, about this, where he notes, and I'm paraphrasing, what James is contesting is whether or not that the particular faith that he has mentioned can, in fact, save. James doesn't believe that it can. In fact, his assertion is that a man who does not have works evidenced in his life has, in biblical terms, no faith at all. Uh, if you're following along in your in your notes, um, this takeaway from verse 14, there's a place for you to jot that jot this down. There'll be several instances as we go through that that you'll be able to do that. Um, so uh, I want you to write down as point two, though, um, this that faith that does not meet needs is useless. You know, James makes a transition here in verses 15, 16, and 17, moving from a general nonspecific statement to one that has a great deal of specificity in it. Um, you know, he says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You'll remember that uh, James is one of the pillar apostles um, in the church of watching over the church of Jerusalem, and he's describing here a desperate position or desperate, desperate circumstance of uh, you know one of the members of their community. When speaking of poorly clothed and and poorly clothed here, the Greek word that's used is gumnos, uh, which can mean completely without clothes or can mean naked at a bare minimum it's inadequate inadequate attire or inadequately garbed so James is describing a a believer or a member of the community that's in pretty desperate circumstances and when he says lacking in daily food you know we're not talking about a situation here where you know I missed breakfast this morning and I'm starving you know, we're talking about lacking daily food. So you're, it's probably a, a kind of a perpetual, ongoing, malnourished type of circumstance um, and, and habitually underfed. So note the rhetorical echo that follows at the end of verse 16, though, when he says, what good is that? So the structure that we've seen so far is, is in verse 14, we saw a nonspecific situation where someone, someone says or someone claims that he has faith but does not have works, followed by the rhetorical, hey, can that faith save him? And here in verse 16, we have a specific situation, man in desperate, the desperate circumstances where the needs are, needs are being uh, remaining unmet, followed by a rhetorical, what good is that? You know, this has echoes of what happens in Matthew 25, verses 41 through 43, where Jesus is telling the parable about the separation of sheep on the right and goats on the left. You know, verse 41 there says that, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed to the eternal fire prepared for the devils and angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. You know, the challenge to us here is, is very real. 
what good is my faith? What good is it if I don't meet needs? It's useless. You know, we see, we see um, in Matthew that, and what we see in James both are very tangible ways in which we can work in people's lives. People's lives can be touched by us, touched by the church. You know, it was mentioned in the sermon last week that sometimes meeting needs can be inconvenient. You know, sometimes meeting needs can also, also be very costly. Um, but you know, the impact that it can have on the lives of others can be priceless. And, you know, but the willingness for us as believers to be inconvenienced for the sake of a brother or sister in Christ speaks volumes about the authenticity of our faith. You know, I've been on the receiving end of that authentic faith. And as as sure as I stand here, I can tell you, you know, I can tell you there's nothing sweeter than receiving the love of God's people as a result of, of that. You know, when you receive in such a tangible way the touch of, of God through his people, it's sweet. You know, verse 17 in our scripture is exactly the point that, is, that James is going after. It's the main point of verses 14, 15, and 16. It says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You know, there's another point, though, worth mentioning here that's kind of intuitive to us, but I think it needs to be said nonetheless. You know, in these verses, James has addressed the believer whose profession of faith is followed by no action. He's also addressed the uncaring believer Um, So in addition to point two, it's worth noting um, as a key takeaway for verses 14 through 17 that the words of an uncaring believer who fails to act to help a person in need are as hollow as the profession of faith of a believer who has no deeds. You know, there's a a tendency for for people to say, hey, you know, there is a contradiction, you know, in uh, in what James is saying here, there's a, uh, James, or rather, James is contrasting works and faith, faith and works. You know, but really, up to this point, it seems pretty straightforward that faith and works are not in contrast with one another, uh, but rather a necessary part of each other. Um, so, but when we move into verse 18 of our text, we see that, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. At this point, it seems like maybe there is some contrasting going on. You know, the first part of the verse, uh, James is kind of setting up that contrast where he says, hey, you have faith. Some of you say you have, you have faith. I'm, just, I'm saying I have works. So there's two camps. You know, one camp says only faith is enough. The other says, has, hey, Works and deeds is where it's at. You know, we'll earn, and earn your way to heaven that way. But remember that James was leading the church in Jerusalem. And, you know, people there kind of had the requirements of the Mosaic laws and the Pharisaical rules kind of imprinted, embedded in them. So it was natural to think that there are people that would land on both sides of this, of the both camps here. Um, but he challenges both of those beliefs by saying, hey, neither position is complete. You know, and 
you know, just thinking about kind of the complete nature and thinking through this, you know, I, you know, I realized that, you know, when I, you know, when I was a child, I'll just use this illustration. You know, when I was a child, you know, um, I got in trouble often. Um, and, and I'm so thankful for the parents that I have because, you know, whenever, um, whenever I was a child and, and did get trouble, my parents would always require that I issue an apology of some sort. You know, and you know, as as an adult, and as I started raising my kids, you know, I had the same same thing. That's how I ran my family. You you mess up, you own it, and um, you're going to apologize for whatever it was that happens. So I remember, you know, my apologies would generally mean, hey, quick, I'm sorry, and away we go to the next, right? So, but you know, it's important to recognize if and those of you who have kids and those of you who maybe were a kid or um, whatnot, it's important to recognize that as a parent, there's generally a corollary question that you have to be prepared to ask whenever you say, hey, you're going to apologize. And the corollary question isn't, isn't um, hey, I'm just, I'm sorry. It's, I'm sorry and what? What are you sorry for? You know, for me, it was generally, I'm sorry and I promise I will never, ever, ever hit my brother again. Uh, but the but the re, the reality is, you know, we do that because we question the sincerity of our kids. We want them to process. We want them to think through what it is that you're sorry for, right? You know, because we know that deep down inside the, we're not after just the words. We're after a change in behavior, right? So because we know proof is in the pudding, so to speak. Well, you know, proof of in the pudding is a, an interesting phrase because it used to be the proof, in original version, it used to be the proof of the pudding is in the eating, you know, which meant that you had to try out the food, you had to test it out in order to know whether it was good. Um, you know, James is communicating that same message to us here. You know, he's saying that you cannot show your faith with words alone, you know, to be certain, though, the words are important. But he's saying the sincerity of your faith will not be demonstrated by what you say as much as by what you do. And so I want you to write this down for point three. Point three is that faith that only believes is devil faith. Verse 19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You know, years ago, I had taken an Old Testament class in which we memorized Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. And many of you know the, that scripture. You know, at least it's known as, well, at least verse 4 is known as the Shema, uh, which is kind of a fundamental basic belief of the Jews. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You know, here in verse 19, James, James compare, compares that fundamental belief that God is one uh, to the faith that demons have. You know, he even goes as far as to say that, hey, believing is fundamentally a good thing. Uh, there is one God. But James is saying, what James is saying here is that without a transformation, the profession of faith falls short. You know, we look at the add-on phrase at the end of verse 19 where it says, and shudder. 
you know, it stresses that at least the demons knowing that they have knowledge of God, knowing that demons know that they are not aligned with God, they know that they are not about doing God's work, they know that they've not been transformed in any way, shape, or formed by the knowledge that they possess. But at least they have enough wisdom to shudder at the prospect of coming face to face with him after doing nothing with what he has provided. You know, so I think that the takeaway that we want to leave verse 19 with is, you know, believing is a good thing. Fundamentally, believing is a good thing, but no man is saved only by believing. There must be a heart transformation that accompanies that belief. You know, saving faith should put a distance between us and sin. And we should always see repentance and separation from worldliness as part of the works that a man who claims to have faith um, should be demonstrated in their, in their life. So we're going to turn a corner here just a little bit and really get to the heart of the tension that theologians have had. So we're in for a wild ride now, so bear with, bear with me as we go. So where's the tension come from? Well, the tensions, um, there's a perceived conflict between James's teaching on justification and the role of works and the Apostle Paul's teaching on justification by faith alone. So here in, in verse 21, James says, hey, Abraham was, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And Paul in Romans 3.28 says, hey, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. See the dissonance there? You know, the teaching that we've received here at Harvest Decatur has been pretty clear. You know, we're made right in the sight of God the hour we first believe in the Holy One, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? It's been made pretty clear. We've been taught that faith is the beginning of our journey as Christians, correct? So I recall not long ago our pastor sharing with us that faith is the beginning. It's the beginning of everything. He shared with us that faith is the beginning of our justification before God where the Holy Spirit has enabled us to believe in Jesus and his atoning work on the cross it's the beginning of our being made right with God him declaring us sinless the point where God casts our sins as far as the east is from the west and he removes the penalty of sin from us while imputing his righteousness into us and then secondly he taught us that Hey, faith is the beginning of uh, sanctification. That's that ongoing cleansing of our lives as we progress through this world, this lifetime, becoming more and more holy. And thirdly, that faith is the beginning of glorification. The point in time where God removes all of our spiritual defects, not in this lifetime, uh, but when our days on this earth are through and our gracious Lord and Savior finally decides it's time for us to come home. I like what Wayne Grudem says about glorification. Uh, and just paraphrasing it, it says, glorification returns to the, re, refers to the time when we face death and judgment. It's the final step in the application of redemption. It's when we're given a new body, no more troubles in this world, no more tears, no more suffering, no more sorrows. It's when we receive a new glorified nature. You know, 
I look forward to that day. And it is going to be a great day. It's going to be a glorious day. But you know, it's only going to be great and it's only going to be glorious if you're ready for judgment. You know, and yet there still remains this perception of a conflict between James and the Apostle Paul. That justification by faith alone. You know, so in James 21, 24, so um, what we've got, what I've got highlighted in context, I want, I want you to see this because, you know, in verse 21, it says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And then in verse 24, it says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then Paul, in context, verse, verse Romans 3, 27 through 31, and we pointed out verse 28 earlier, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So it appears that there's a conflict, but what we need to do is we need to approach this from the perspective of, you know, the Bible is the inerrant word of God. You know, in fact, we, we know, you know, in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And with that, just that understanding, it should be crystal clear that there is an ability to reconcile that that dissonance that we see um, because there's no way that divine inspiration would lead to conflict in scripture and there's no way uh, that there should be confusion that follows afterwards uh, so I think we should take the position that either James and Paul are saying exactly the same thing in different ways or they're saying two different things or some combination of both. So, um, unfortunately, you know, as humans, you know, we, uh, it often happens that we get confused by what we say. Did I say that right? Anyway, um, John Piper uses an illustration that I think is fantastic. He says, you know, I could use the word rock and I might mean a stone or I might mean a genre of music or it might mean an action, like something that you would do on the front seat of, or in the front porch of Cracker Barrel in a rocking chair. So, um, so, you know, there are times where you really have to flesh out what is being said and how it's being said, and this is one of those times. So, um, we're going to go ahead. John, po John Piper points out that in Paul's teaching in Romans that Paul was addressing those who were intentionally misinterpreting his teaching of justification by faith alone. And he uses a couple of examples here. He uses one from Romans 3.8, and he calls, calls them out by saying, and why not do evil that good may come? As some people slander, slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. There were some people who were reasoning that if by faith alone we're justified while we're ungodly and this magnifies the grace of God, then let's just keep on sinning because God will get more glory. You know, and Paul calls them out on saying, hey, your condemnation is just, that's just not right. Um, and there's a similar situation in Romans 5.20 where Paul's, Paul is teaching 
uh, what his teaching was being misused. And it says, now that the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. People were saying, let's continue to sin, continue in sin, that grace may increase. And Paul refuted that notion in six, Romans 6, 1 that you see on the screen. Uh, you know, when he says, um, hey, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, by no means. Paul was taking a strong, very clear stance against the erroneous interpretation of his teaching which people were using to continue to live a life that did not bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ. Let me say it a different way. Paul is making the case that a person's life should look differently after justification. Okay, so in, in fact, if you look at what Paul says in his letter to the Galatians, in Galatians 5.13, uh, you'll see that it says, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity to, uh, for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And in Galatians 5, 6, he says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. It's not works like those of circumcision, but only faith will earn God's favor. But what kind of faith? You know, these two verses make it pretty clear that the faith that Paul is talking about is the kind of faith that produces love that moves us to serve one another. You know, this is essentially the same case that James is making. You know, faith, a certain kind of faith, is a faith that's steeped in action is the type of faith that is a Saving faith. So I want you to write this down as point four. A faith that saves is a working faith. You know, another thing that we need to consider is, you know, how the word justify, what the word justify is and how it's used in context. You know, the Greek word for justify is dikaioo. And it has three basic meanings. You know, one of them is to render righteous. Another one is to show or exhibit one to be righteous and to declare, pronounce, or to declare and pronounce one to be righteous. You know, most Christians use the term justify as Paul has used it. It's God's declaration of innocence when we first believe. And Paul bases his understanding using the life of Abraham in the, in the example of um, I'm sorry, comes from Genesis 15, 6, where he says, Abraham believed the Lord. He credited him as righteousness. As righteousness. There is no works associated there. It comes from Genesis 15, 6. Uh, the only thing that's mentioned there is belief. James, on the other hand, uses the same root word when he uses Abraham's life as the example that comes from Genesis 22. So, Paul from Genesis 15, James from Genesis 22, and he relates it through Abraham's obedience regarding Isaac. You know, James's use of the word is consistent with how Judaism uh, would have understood it, um, and the church in Jerusalem would have understood this clearly, that um, this is a person who is demonstrating righteous conduct, 
and would therefore be declared justified. So uh, let's go ahead and put up the next slide. There's a, the Greek word for justify. This is kind of a quick summary of, of this. You know, the, the word justify, as used by Paul, is dikaio. Uh, it's the initial verdict of innocence. comes from Genesis 15. Um, and, uh, you know, he uses Abraham as the example. And then James is, uses dikaiosine. It's a derivative of it. Um, it's understood in, the, in Judaism. It's related to the correct righteous conduct, which ultimately leads to a judgment of justified. And that's found in Genesis 22, also uses Abraham. You know, and, and Douglas Moo in his commentary um, addresses or says, says it like this. So justify in the manner in which Paul uses it refers to a person, how a person gets into relationship with God. While in James, it signifies what the relationship must ultimately look like in order to receive God's final approval, judgment. So both Paul and James use Abraham as an example for making their respective cases, which is fascinating, uh, which in and of itself probably causes some of the confusion, but um, nonetheless, they both do. And James has turned to Abraham as a model of a faithful believer in the Old Testament. And just quickly, just think through the timeline here uh, about Abraham's faith. Abraham was 75 when God called him to leave Haran. He was 86 whenever he decided to take matters into his own hand and he fathered Ishmael. He was 100 when Isaac was born. And then Isaac, 10, 15 years later, I'm not, we don't really know the exact date, but say it's 15 years old when God says, I want you to put your son on an altar. So it was close to 40 years of Abraham waiting for and raising Isaac that God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. And despite the promise that God had made to Abraham to bless the entire world through Isaac, you know, he was obedient. You know, even facing the death of his son, he was, he was obedient. Didn't know how God was going to uh, fulfill the promise that he'd made to him, but he did nonetheless. You know, the key verses I want you to take away from, or the, the kind of the key takeaways, rather, from verses 20 through 24 is kind of an adaptation from Chris Bruno in his book, Paul versus James, What We've Been Missing in the Faith and Works Debate where he says, as James reflected on Abraham's faith-fueled obedience, he concludes that Abraham's faith was active along with his works and his faith was completed by his works. So um, the, il the illustration here, um, for those of you who are in small groups, you're gonna see that illustration again in your small group study time. So, um, Take a good look at it. You're going you're to revisit it. Hey, it was close. Um, it, like I said, it was close to 40 years of time elapsed. Paul's talking about the moment we first believed. James is talking about a lifetime of, of obedience. You know, in the last section of our text today, James turns to a second example to make uh, his, his point that a person of faith will live a life of action that demonstrates their faith. Uh, this time he chooses Rahab. 
you know, recall the book of Joshua where the spies had been sent into Jericho to, in, to investigate the fighting force. Uh, the, Rahab had hid the spies in her house, it was, and her house was constructed into the city wall. The men sent to seize the, the spies had asked Rahab to bring, bring them out, but rather than turn them over, uh, she covered them up under a bunch of grass and flocks and stuff on the roof uh, to hide them. Uh, to protect them from being captured. And, you know, what James says is, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. You know, we know that Rahab, from the rest of the story, Rahab was spared the destruction of Jericho because her action, because of her action to protect the spies. But what drove her action was her faith. You know, Rahab had, had, had become convinced through God's actions um, on behalf of Israel by the stories that she had heard, probably the scuttlebutt in the town square. Um, she had, through the people that she'd come in contact with, she had become convinced as she told the spies in Joshua 2.11. She said that, the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. She was convinced. Her faith was real. She had professed her faith, and she took action on it. You know, um, the result of that faith was to meet the needs of the spies, and it was at great risk to her own life whenever she did so. We, but we need to ask the question, why would James use Rahab in this? You know, why would James place an example of a Canaanite woman who was a harlot and a prostitute alongside a celebrated Old Testament ancestor of the faith such as Abraham? Why would the person of low moral character and the friend of God be presented together? James is confirming for us that anyone is capable of acting on his or her faith, whether patriarch or prostitute, true believers, regardless of background, race, ethnicity, upbringing, training, schooling, whether you're a video gamer or a basketball player, whether you're a real duckling or pure white swan, true believers with true saving faith will demonstrate their faith by their actions and their faith will be completed by their works. So to be absolutely clear, James is not arguing whether works are to be added to faith. He's arguing that we must possess the right kind of faith and those works that are produced will ultimately be how we are judged. How am I doing on time? Show of hands, five more minutes? So five, 10, 15, 20. <laughs> I might get up to two hours. No, hey, um, as I close, I'm gonna go ahead and invite the uh, worship team to, uh, to come up. I just wanna kinda give a final thought while they're coming up on what kind of works we're supposed to do as, uh, as believers. You know, aside from our individual daily disciplines of prayer and study and fellowship with our Lord, which frankly serve to bring us closer to Him than we can ever imagine, 
you know, everyone here, everyone online, all of us should do, first of all, what God asks us to do, the first profession of faith, and that is believer's baptism. So if you're a believer and you haven't done that, first thing that you should do is take that step of obedience to follow him and then move on to the things that we've been talking about, you know, you know, today. You know, once you've done that, don't neglect anything. You know, no matter how small, no matter how trivial, if the Holy Spirit is moving you to do something, acknowledge that because those are the things that as we do um, and as we trust him to lead us, we see the promise they that trust in him shall be saved. So with that, um, I urge you, brothers, sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your body as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. May the Lord bless this word. Amen.